So uh, this morning, um, as we're obviously beginning a new month, um, we'll be continuing a series of lessons we've been doing in Ephesians 5 and 6. We've just been working through Ephesians 5 and 6, um, dealing with each subject one at a time. Um, Last year we did Ephesians 4, and so at the beginning of this year it just seemed fitting to continue on and um, finish the book of Ephesians. And we've been dealing specifically with learning to walk in wisdom with God. Um, This has been extremely helpful for me this year and has really helped me understand how important God's wisdom is in accomplishing his will, how his wisdom really is woven into every area of our lives and every decision we make, and how valuable his wisdom is um, and how valuable it is to seek that wisdom diligently and prayerfully. Um, This morning we're going to be dealing with verses 5 through 9 specifically, which ends a series of instructions for different relationships. Um, We've seen wives to their husbands, husbands to their wives, children to their parents, and fathers to their children. And verses 5 through 9 finishes the section dealing with servants and their masters. So I know that we just read this in the scripture reading, but we'll uh, go ahead and read this again in verses 5 through 9 specifically. And then we'll uh, start getting into the instructions here after reading it again. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, so as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So I want to start this lesson looking at verses 5 through 8 and two angles of the instructions that are given to servants. Um, We're going to start by looking at the heart that a servant is called to have and then the kind of obedience that a servant is called to have And if you notice in verse 9, at least the New American Standard says, and masters do the same things to them. So if we can get a handle on what a servant is told to do, then I think not just um, the instructions to the master, but really woven into every work that we may end up being involved in, these instructions end up serving as a foundation for any kind of work that we choose to do. Um, and something that I think is significant about instructions to servants, there are five places in the New Testament where servants are given similar instructions to what we read here in Ephesians 5. Um, Colossians is a book that is very paralleled with Ephesians. Um, it's almost like a more concise version of Ephesians in, in some ways. So you have a very similar command in Colossians 3, 22-25. Um, 1 Timothy 6, I think two years ago, Uh, 2019, I was doing a series of lessons going through 1 Timothy, and we looked at all of the instructions kind of all together in that lesson. Uh, Titus chapter 2 is another instruction to servants, and then 1 Peter 2, 18 is another one. Um, We're not going to look at all of those, but just to kind of give you an idea of how frequent this is and how important it is. Um, There's a common saying I've heard many times, Uh, with just studying the Bible and giving significance to things that God says, how many times does God need to say something for it to have importance? Once, right? Um, Someone might say with the New Testament teaching, well, this is the only place where this is found, so 
you know, maybe it's not very important, and that's usually where you bring that up. Well, you know, God only has to say something once for it to be something very important. Well, this is said in five different places, right? Um, that's more often than husbands are instructed how to love their wives or wives to their husbands. And so, again, just to give you a focused sense of significance with these instructions. And initially, um, I want to deal with, again, the internal application because I think in all of these instructions, there's really two main things that are commanded. Um, One of them is an attitude and a condition of heart in serving. And the other is obedience. And really, it's the internal attitude that is going to motivate the kind of obedience that's emphasized in all of these passages. So you notice in verse 5, slaves, be obedient. So it starts saying that the goal is obedience, but what, what kind of obedience or where is this coming from? And then all the way through verse 8, it's really emphasized that this is an obedience that comes from faith, comes from the heart, and it comes from a godly attitude. So, and this is a discipline. Um, there's a person named Dan Gable. I don't know if many of you have heard of Dan Gable, but he's a famous wrestler that I think in the 70s he won an Olympic gold. And Dan has a very famous... So his record was like 181 wins in high school and college and one loss. And his only loss was actually his very, very last wrestling match, which is really weird. Um, but he's, he's someone who's done a lot of motivational speeches. He's very famous for one particular saying, though. He said, once you've wrestled... Everything else in life is easy. And what he means by that is the kind of work ethic and discipline that's required in excelling at wrestling. If you just apply that same physical discipline, really you'll be able to get, um, gain skill in everything and learn excellence in anything you do. And I've heard him even relate it to things like parenting, you know, the work that parenting takes. Well, why don't you turn to 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 11? Because obviously when we're dealing with the discipline of applying these instructions, we are not talking about physical disciplines, right? But all the same, I want to argue to you that all the same, the instructions that are given to servants, they are a discipline of godliness and faith that if we can understand how to make these applications our own, they can grant us success in the Lord in anything else we do because I think from what we see with the consistency of these instructions, there's something deeply fundamental in these instructions that again, if we can apply these things in whatever career path or work we're involved in, we can do God's will and be pleasing to him in it. So First Timothy 4, 7 through 11, he says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. And so again, I want to argue that this is indeed a discipline. Just like fathers raising up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church, 
wives submitting to their husbands as uh, the church is subject to Jesus. All of those things, there, there's the instruction, but obviously the application is not just a light switch where you just kind of, well, you turn it on and it's perfectly happening. It's something that we have to carry with us into what, what is a relevant situation in our lives. And so husbands have to carry God's instruction with them in their mind and in their heart. They have to prayerfully seek God's guidance and really seek to apply it diligently. And it's the same with these things. So in verse 7 of 1 Timothy 4, this is something that we have to discipline ourselves in. And in verse 10, this is something that we need to labor and strive for. But what it accomplishes is it fixes our hope more completely on the living God, on our Savior, Jesus, right? So going back to Ephesians uh, chapter 6 with these instructions. Um, The struggle of applying these things, again, like we talked about in the Bible class with someone like the rich young ruler, right? He saw only what he was losing and not what Jesus was offering him and what he would gain. All he saw was the burden of the sacrifice, and so he walked away sorrowful. But I think it's it's important that we don't just see these things as isolated instructions or just things to do as works themselves, but we have to keep in mind that the struggle of applying these things is deeply heart-changing. So again, if you look at verse 5, that servants are told to be obedient, not just as an action, but with fear and trembling in the sincerity of their heart as to Christ. In verse 6, at the end of the verse, doing the will of God from the heart. And in verse 7, you see this again when he mentions, with good will, render service. So all of these things are saying that there's something in your heart that needs to be changed for this kind of obedience to be accomplished. And what this ends up doing is it makes us more dependent on the grace of our Lord. It brings his glory into a clearer view, and it pushes us to focus more on Jesus as the ambition of our service and not just the results of what we're getting from our job itself or from our boss or from our environment. And I don't think it's an accident that in verse 10 through, uh, through verse 18, we're encouraged immediately after these instructions to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So what this does is it pushes us to depend more on God's strength and not our own. It pushes us to see our inadequacies. It empties us of ourselves. And it causes us to depend on God through prayer. And it pushes us to a deeper devotion to prayer. And so in verse 10 through 18, this is meant, I think, to be something that is joined with all of these applications. That in verse 10, we're strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. In verse 10, we see our need to put on the full armor of God and to utilize everything he's given us. And in verse 18, it pushes us to pray at all times, to pray as much as as possible in the spirit. And also to have an awareness of the need to pray for others who are also enduring the same struggles and implying God's will. So just a couple of quick things that I think can um, practically relate to this beyond just the overall uh, benefit of faith and heart involved. Um, When you look at verse 5 through 8, notice that there are three times it's emphasized your service is not just to be pleasing to your boss. I heard someone recently, an older preacher, um, this, I heard this after all of the classes on parenting and um, fathers with their children, but I thought this was 
so helpful, and I, I would have brought this up before if, if I would have heard it before that. But he mentioned that what is the ultimate goal in why your children obey you? Right? So some children, they obey only when they have to. And, you know, there's a time where that's, that's, that's necessary. They obey because, you know, they need to obey you. But there comes a time when your children are stronger than you and have the ability to make their own decisions, right? And so eventually they're not going to obey you only because you can force them to. Now, children can also obey their parents because they love them, and that's good. But this older brother mentioned that that's really not the highest goal of obedience. The highest goal, the true goal, is for your children to obey you because it's pleasing to the Lord, right? And it's the same with with servants serving their masters, with employees to their boss, that ultimately we're not just doing our jobs well and trying to work hard and do an honest work and being diligent in anything we do. It's ultimately not for the praise of our employer, but it's because we we are genuinely striving to be pleasing to the Lord himself. That is our highest ambition in doing these things. But a part of that, though, so in verse 5, we are connecting the person in authority over us to Christ himself. So notice, in the sincerity of your heart at the end of verse 5, as to Christ. Verse 6, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Verse 7, with good will render service as to the Lord, not to men. Right? So this is a part of the discipline of doing our work for the Lord is we need to be treating our employers, anybody who has authority over us, we need to be striving to see them and serve them in a way that acknowledges that to us, they are a reflection of the Lord. And how we treat them says a lot about our attitude toward the Lord, right? Um, Some uh, people with authority and people in positions of authority don't do it very well. I've worked for people who were very reasonable in the way they managed and very helpful and kind. And I've also worked for people who are incredibly unreasonable and harsh. And when it says give up threatening, I had bosses who that was just the style of their leadership. Like literally, the only way they would motivate people was they would threaten you, which means threatening me a lot. Um, And so the challenge is we're not giving honor to our employer in a way only fitting with their own behavior. First um, Timothy 6 really deals with this, that servants need to consider their masters of deserving all respect, right? And that's not qualified, well, respect them if they respect you. Or as long as they're doing a good job, make sure you honor them for that, right? And so we've got to learn to treat our bosses with grace, with kindness, and with love, even if the way that they're managing their affairs and managing us is unreasonable and harsh. But it's also a discipline of contentment, joy, and thankfulness. I think one of the things that we can gain out of the instructions to servants, um, does God encourage us to only have joy in our work if it's something that we are personally passionate about, right? Um, Obviously, we have the freedom to pursue things that we're passionate about, and it's very good and very encouraging if we're able to get into a line of work that we really enjoy it, and going to work is a joy because we're accomplishing something that we see as significant or just kind of appeals to who we are and what we enjoy to do. But I don't imagine if somebody is a little kid 
that their great ambition of life is to be a slave to someone, right? Um, so God is not encouraging us to only find joy in things that maybe we'd naturally be passionate about. I'd like to suggest to you, if we can apply these instructions, a godly person will work hard and have joy and contentment doing anything. Anything that can stay within the realm of what is good in the kingdom of God, right? So things obviously that would uh, disregard kingdom values or the will of God. Obviously, those are things we shouldn't even involve ourselves in. But if it's something that we can do, even if it's not something we enjoy doing, God can lead us to have contentment and thankfulness in doing it. What this also means is we need to make a commitment to not complain, both about how difficult our job is, how difficult our employees are around us, or complaining about our boss themselves. I would go so far as to say that with 1 Timothy 6, saying we need to consider our employers, our bosses, people who are over us, consider them as worthy of all respect, that we actually should be striving to protect their reputation, especially when they're slandered by our our coworkers. I know those things are challenging and um, very difficult to abide by, but complaining and the attitude that is connected with complaining really destroys these instructions from their very foundation. And so we really need to have zero tolerance, zero tolerance for complaining both at work but even outside of the workplace. And we need to be applying a discipline to very deliberately be cultivating contentment in whatever it is we're doing, find joy in it, in the Lord, and be very thankful to God for things that maybe not because of our environment, because maybe our environment is just not enjoyable. Just as a passing reference, 1 Peter 2, in giving this instruction to servants, tells servants to be submissive and to have this attitude even if their master was harsh and unreasonable, right? So again, our thankfulness, our joy, our contentment can't be based on our circumstances or the nature of our environment and the people who are there. We really need to be focusing on how can we find more joy in the Lord himself and be abiding in his will even when it's difficult to accomplish because of our environment. So um, I think somehow I've ended up having that slide twice. Um, Let's see if we can get this back up. Sorry about this. I know it's very distracting. So I want to go through the obedience of a servant, thinking about um, some reflective questions that can help us consider what it looks like to really strive to be obedient to the way that we're instructed in Ephesians chapter 6. So again, in verse 5, the first way that we're instructed... um, to behave in our work environments is to be obedient. Other places that give this instruction, like First uh, Timothy, Titus, Colossians, that we're to be striving to be obedient in everything as much as we possibly can. So children of God should be characterized not just by obedience in a general sense, but especially in our work environment. Obedience should be something that characterizes and causes a child of God to stand out in their environment. So some questions to consider. Is your work ethic only based on your environment or is it based in the Lord and his instructions? 
And I think this is really um, easy to get caught into. Uh, when I was working at UPS, there were some areas of um, the building where the employees generally worked harder, and there were other areas of the building where there were employees who kind of had a culture where they really didn't work hard and had an insubordinate attitude. So if somebody was hired in and put into either one of those environments, if they were going into an environment where people were working hard already, what did you expect was generally going to happen with that new employee? Well, they were going to learn to work hard because that's what everybody else was doing. But if they went into that environment where people were being lazy, were not really applying themselves, and had just a bad attitude about the work, what do you think was going to happen? They were generally going to adapt that same mentality, right? And so what we need to be striving for is not to have an attitude that I will only work as hard as everyone else is working or dictate my work ethic because of what expectations people are putting on me at work. But ultimately, again, we are striving to be pleasing to the Lord and have our due diligence be in service to him, not just our work environment. So the second question is, is your work ethic based on how much you enjoy your job or even prefer the kind of work you are required to do? So again, some of us may be working a job that is not something that we would ever want to do of our own uh, preference. Maybe it's something that we outright just don't like to do. But does that dictate, again, your zeal or your work ethic on the job? So again, we have to be careful to make sure that our diligence to obey uh, our, the expectations of our job and our employers isn't just based on the people in our environment or expectations if those expectations are very low or being able to get away with doing um, a very poor job or slack job, we still need to be striving to obey the Lord and recognize we're accountable to him ultimately. How do you respond when your work is not being observed or even valued by others? So if you look at verse 6, slaves are not to accomplish their work for the sake of eye service. And the idea of that is only doing what is able to be observed and only going so far as it's appreciated by what others are valuing or noticing or praising. And so how do you respond when no one's around? Um, do you try to you know, take extra breaks because nobody sees and nobody knows? Um, do you work harder when people uh, above you in work, your bosses are observing you? I remember at UPS, um, whenever higher management took walks around the building, um, everybody would tend to straighten up, their form would correct, they would uh, talk less, they would joke less, and they would work harder. And then as soon as they were out of view, people slouched down, people started talking a lot more, everybody slowed down. And so that was just kind of the nature of the job, right? That's just kind of what people do, is if somebody who really cares is on the job and they're going to bring authority with them, well, then you'll work hard. But as soon as they're gone and there's no longer that accountability, well, now it's not that big of a deal anymore, right? And so again, this just gets back to our obedience being not motivated by our environment, but by the Lord. Even when other people aren't looking, Jesus can still see what we're doing, right? And even when other people don't care about what we're doing, Jesus still cares about what we're doing. So the last question is, how do you respond to being told to do something that you do not want to do? Um, I remember when I was in UPS and management, there were certain employees who, um, they would do things that I knew they didn't want to do. And there were other employees that if they were told to do something that they didn't want to do, they would uh, make it as hard for me 
to get them to do it, and they would do it as slowly as they could, oftentimes to send me a message, hey, I'm not the guy that you asked to do this. It's that other person who's going to do it for you, right? Um, So how do you respond when you're told to do something you don't want to do? Do you give your boss a great deal of grief for it, or do you just suck it up and find joy in it and do it anyway, right? So again, we're not doing things for the sake of eye service. We're not just doing our work to meet our own sense of preference. We're not just doing things because we enjoy it ourselves, but we're willing to make sacrifices to be obedient and even quickly obedient without argument. So I want to bring attention to verse 8 before we move on, that we need to remember that the Lord cherishes the good that we do even when other people don't value it. The management style at UPS, good generally did not get recognized. You were only disciplined, talked down to, and threatened. And that was the way everything was motivated, right? And I think that's generally pretty normal in most work environments. It seems to be the management model that I hear most places have. And so we really just have to remember that we're not doing these things again in the hope that our bosses will adequately recognize us or that we'll someday be praised for all the hard work we're doing and the sacrifices we're making. The idea of verse 8 is we should know, it says knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And there is a great emboldening courage and contentment that comes from knowing that God sees what other people don't and his praise, his grace is sufficient. So in these slides, I didn't have the animation, so you're going to get it all all at once. But masters do the same thing in verse 9. So masters are told to apply these same principles in their position of authority. Uh, They're to see their servants as reflections of the Lord, to not just see them as human beings, not just as objects to get things from, but they're to see their humanity, but also that these are people that are created by God that Jesus died for. And that fundamentally should radically change the way that a master or someone in management then treats those who are under their authority. So ultimately, although they are working by the perspective of authority, still they're applying the same principles of a servant. So masters do the same things. So one, I think this means that anyone with a management authority should be striving to develop a genuine care and relationships with those who are under their authority. Um, It can be easy to only be commanding and especially to command at a great distance, um, to give orders and then step away. Um, But I don't think you see that kind of leadership style in Jesus or the style of leadership that he was raising his disciples to have. Obviously, management in a business is not going to be a one-to-one correlation with the way that Jesus worked with his disciples or the way his disciples are being trained to lead exactly but there still are uh, connected principles of love, care, and relationship that um, need to be carefully applied. Um, And this will get into giving up threatening and how can you cultivate obedience and service without just forming habits of threatening to gain that. It means helping and listening whenever possible. So I consider in the context of a master and slave relationship, There may be times where a slave is genuinely exasperated, right? Like they're trying to do something and maybe they're just not able to do it because of factors of service that the master just can't see from his perspective. 
There may be obstacles that need to be taken care of that a servant just doesn't have the authority to take care of and really needs his master to use their authority to step in and take care of those things so the servant can better accomplish their job. So there's a hard balance to this. Um, In my experience in management, um, helping and listening can only go so far. There are are defined limits where um, I'm no longer the person in authority, but my employees can easily end up feeling like they're the ones who are in authority over me. So all of these things are, are a difficult discipline of how do you listen as much as you can, give as much help as you can, but still keep things in a situation where um, you are leading and you are managing and you are ensuring that things are getting accomplished the way that they need to get accomplished. But none of that is at the expense that um, a master giving credit to the humanity of a slave and especially that this is a person that Christ died for. Um, You need to be careful to listen to um, the needs and the afflictions of the people under his authority. So how do you give up threatening? And in situations that would come up with insubordination or disobedience, how do you, how do you deal with those things and still not have threatening involved and maintain your leadership? And I want to portray it this way. So at UPS, again, in, in management, um, unfortunately, it was an environment where insubordination was a very normal thing. And so if there were no consequences for behavior, nobody's going to work hard. Nobody's going to care about the the job. Nobody's going to care about the authority of someone in management. And nobody's going to respond to any instruction or anything that someone in management is really instructing them, telling them they need to do for the job. So again, how do we find this balance of giving up threatening but still dealing with situations where there's insubordination and there has to be consequences? Well, so the way I've reconciled this and, um, you know, I'm young and definitely any applications I've made or found from this really need to be qualified and corrected. But the way I've reconciled this is consequences need to be clearly communicated at times, not by way of threat, but by way of just being clear that if this is what you are going to do, our policy is we take care of that this way. And if you don't make a change, our policy is, then this is what's going to happen. And not because that's what you want to do, but because that's what needs to happen as a consequence. So there still needs to be communication, but it's not that wrath and punishment are the crutch to gain obedience. So again, where I was um, in management, the style of leadership there, like I mentioned before, was that threatening was the exclusive method to gain obedience and work ethic. And what I observed is it gained an extremely shallow kind of work ethic. That people would work out of fear, and that ethic of fear really would only go so far, right? So again, when the person who is making them afraid by always working by threatening, as soon as they walked away, they weren't very motivated, their attitude was generally very embittered as they were doing their job and they were uh, uh, very motivated eventually to even want to get out of that environment and uh, motivate other people to get out of that environment as well. So it doesn't really cultivate the kind of obedience and work ethic that God is striving to have masters build with their authority, right? Um, So again, 
there's a difficult balance to this where there are situations that consequences that make consequences necessary but there still needs to be that caution that threatening cannot be a part of a manager's style of leadership to gain obedience so the last point on the board here is authority must be used in a manner that honors the fact that we are all mutually accountable to Jesus for the way that we treat one another so again in verse 9 masters do the same things to them and give up threatening knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So the idea is both the master and the slave in this context are both servants. They're both slaves of Christ and both are going to be held equally and impartially accountable for the way that they are treating one another. And so a servant will be held accountable for the way that they respond to their master and their leadership and a master will be held accountable for the way that he treats his servants, whether or not he's listening to them, whether or not he's willing to help and know what's going on and ways he can help to accomplish the tasks that his servants have need of, and whether or not he's treating his servants with dignity, with respect, with justice, with fairness. And all of this, again, ends up creating a heart and an attitude that leads to mutual humility and respect in accomplishing the things in this context. So authority needs to be used in a manner that honors the fact that all are mutually accountable to Jesus. So we'll stop the lesson there. Um, what I'd like to do is pray for a moment about the applications of these things. And then after the prayer, we'll reread chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And we'll have the invitation song after that. If you'll pray with me for a moment. Uh, our Father, our God, um, we love you and we are so thankful that we can have your guidance and that we can have an understanding of the value of seeing ourselves as servants and that we can see Jesus in a way that leads us to embrace how hard it can be to set ourselves aside and to find joy even in situations where we may be overlooked and abused, taken for granted and taken advantage of. Help us in whatever situation we're in to be motivated to work hard for you and that we could learn the discipline of seeing you and being concerned about honoring you and that our dependence on a daily basis could be set on the strength that you provide. God, just help us to be hard workers, to be honest, to have dignity, to have respect for those who are over us, to have humble attitudes, to have tender hearts, to have hearts that are willing to repent and change when, when needed and when we need to express any apology for anything that we've done wrong in our jobs. God, just help us to be quick to lay ourselves low. Um, Help us to find encouragement in you when things are difficult and encouragement in one another. Father, help us to put away attitudes of complaining. Help us to even receive rebuke in our jobs or mistreatment without being embittered in our hearts or in our souls, but renewing our trust in your favor that you are a God of justice, that you are a God of love, and that you reward and value the things that are overlooked and neglected in the world. Just thank you for being such a great father.
leader and master. God, we know that the world does not abide by your instruction that management is abused and that those under management are also abusive. And so help us, God, that we would show your light and that we would be set apart and distinct from the world around us and the way that we behave and speak and work. Help us, God, that in applying these things, that more than anything, our love for you would abound richly, that we would desire you to be with you more earnestly, and that our relationship together and our mutual struggles would grow in seeing our own weaknesses and seeing how forgiving and compassionate and patient you are with us as we grow in your grace and grow in doing your will more effectively and having a higher esteem and reverence for all that you say, all that you command, all that you are. In your son's name, amen. So we'll reread chapter 6, 5 through 9, and if anyone after that has any needs or um, conviction to respond uh, to the gospel this morning, um, we have an appropriate time as we sin and sing. But let's read chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Let's stand and sing the invitation song. <laughs>